I'm sure many of you can relate to this. If you have a day where you have 10 things that you need to get done, uh, it's on your checklist. Maybe five of them are the standard things you have to do every day and they need to be done by the end of the day. Maybe four of them are things you hope to do but could be done tomorrow because they're not exactly super important. And one thing that absolutely, without hesitation, has to be done right away. Which thing do you start with? If you're like me, you probably will be very, very tempted to start with those nine things before you hit the one thing that really, really needs to be done. There's something in the soul of certain people and something in the the character of people like myself that makes you want to not do the first thing first, but instead to take the first thing and place it somewhere farther down the line. Now, I mention that not just as an encouragement for you to get rid of that procrastination instinct, but because I think really that the stories Jesus tells today or what we hear in the gospel from Luke 12 are really reminders that there is a huge danger in human understanding and the way that we approach the world when we don't put first things first and instead allow secondary things to become primary in our lives. Today, Jesus tells, or we are told two uh, stories, one about a man coming to Jesus and one in which Jesus tells a story back to the man that are both surrounding economics and money, but I think they tell the larger point of how dangerous it is to allow anything to take the place of our devotion to God and to neighbor. So I'd like to speak to you about why I say that and what it is as a constant reminder to us or an important challenge to us today. But before I do and get into the sort of the meat of things, I think there's also something really important here that's a side issue, but it's still pretty important, even if it's not the main thrust of the passage. You may have listened as I was reading about how this entire conversation begins. It begins this way in Luke chapter 12, verse 13. Someone in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. But Jesus said to him, Friend, who set me to be a judge or arbitrator over you? Jesus is approached by somebody who feels he's getting bilked in the family inheritance and he wants Jesus to intervene. And I couldn't help, as I read this, to go back to think to the many times that I have had the the fortune and, and unfortunately the sad duty of presiding at funerals. And so often when I preside at funerals, people ask, isn't that a difficult thing to do? Yes, it can. You're helping people process their grief, but it's also meaningful. Even when it's a really sad occasion, to be able to speak into that with the hope that God gives, the hope of resurrection, that we have a shepherd who will walk through us, uh, with us through the dark valley of the shadow of death. We don't need to fear evil for his rod and his staff will comfort us. The times that are really most devastating when I lead funerals are the times where I have seen this kind of thing happening. The saddest funerals I've ever presided over are ones in which two sides of the family will not sit with each other, they will not talk to each other, where they fight about where this person is supposed to be buried, they fight about who has the tea set and who doesn't get the tea set and who was loved more and who wasn't. If it wasn't the sadness of it all, it would be comical sometimes because of the pettiness between different groups within the family. And yet it is deeply, deeply sad. The last memories you have of this person are not memories of love. They are instead memories of bitterness, of anger, and of pettiness. I think this story, before we get into the main thrust of what it's about, is a very timely reminder to all of us that none of us are immortal. None of us can go through life thinking death will never touch me. It will touch us. And this is a reminder that we have an especially important duty to those that we leave behind to ensure that while there is still time left, we make sure we take care of the arrangements we need to take care of so that this sort of thing doesn't happen when the time comes for us to lay our burden down. It's not an easy thing for us to think about our own death, and many people, of course, for that reason, avoid doing the things that need doing. 
They don't reconcile with the person that needs to be reconciled. They don't uh, make their will explicit and clear about how it is that my inheritance is to be divided because you don't want to provoke conflict. You don't want to have pain. You don't want to have that short-term kind of difficulty. But believe you me, if you don't deal with it in your life, it is simply deferred to the next generation and you are giving them a tremendous and terrible burden to bear at times where they are most weak. So before I get into all of this, take a note from this and say, pay attention to what your arrangements are because all of us know that at some point those arrangements are going to have to be made. The only real question is, is it going to be us who makes it so that our family can live in peace or is it our family who has to make it and divided by strife? So with that happy note out of the way, let's go on to the next little part. So what's going on here? Why is it that this person comes to Jesus and why is it that Jesus doesn't seem very interested in dealing with them? Imagine for a moment that you hear, you're in a village in, in Palestine somewhere. You hear that the hopes and dreams of hundreds of years of prophets about how it is that a Messiah would come, would reconcile the peoples and bring glory back to Israel. That this Messiah has been cited. Many people are saying that this Messiah is near. And then you hear stories about this person reaching out and touching a blind man who suddenly can see that a lame person can walk, some woman with an endless uh, uh, hemorrhage and bleed, that this woman is healed because she reaches and touches the hem of his garment. And now he's coming into town, and when he comes into town, you rush to see him, and what do you say? You say, Messiah, person we're waiting for, great healer, my brother is not giving me dad's tea set like I want. Doesn't that seem like a little bit out of proportion? I mean, I'm not mocking the reality that inheritance can be an important thing, but what does Jesus do immediately? He, he, in a way, sort of says, get your priorities in order. What does he say? He says, who appointed me to be an arbitrator or judge over you? Be on your guard against all kinds of greed, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. Here's the person who holds out the gift of eternal life, but instead of him saying, show me this gift, show me the way and the truth and the life, what does he say? He says, give me more stuff. One of the great dangers of living in affluence is because you get so easily wrapped up in material things that, yes, are important. You come to believe that these things are the most important, and that is so dangerous to our soul. You know, tomorrow I'm starting my vacation. I'm looking forward to it very much, as much as I love serving you folks. I don't want to see you for a few weeks. Don't take it personally. But one of the things that we're going to be doing is we'll be driving out to uh, the Maritimes. I'm going to be staying at a house there that's near the beach. Uh, it's really good. We were able to stay there as a, a, a friend had told me about a church that I can, I can stay in the rectory for a little while. And I'm looking forward to kind of hanging out on the beach, maybe with a daiquiri or something. Or I guess in the Maritimes it has to be screech maybe or uh, some, something appropriate and maybe some scallops. And what's going to happen? I'm going to be out there and I can guarantee you what's going to happen. I'm going to be sitting on the beach and I'm going to enjoy watching the majesty of the, the waters of the Bay of Fundy and the tides rising and the tides falling, a great majestic bit of nature. And I'll look around and somebody's going to be playing with their phone. Right? The great majesty of nature out there, the great majesty of being there to relax and instead of that you're tweeting something about Donald Trump or about Justin Trudeau or whatever it is that doesn't matter that much. It happens all the time. Think about how often it is uh, not necessarily where you're confronted with so stark a contrast. Think about even things that you really value in life, about friendships, for example. 
you know, it, it may not be quite as, as true for an older generation, but I can tell you for a younger generation how frustrating it is that you cannot go and sit down and have lunch with somebody, to share a coffee or a beer with somebody without there being a phone on the table. And what does that phone do? It beeps, it buzzes, and suddenly the conversation you're having just as it starts getting closer stops because it's so important that they find out some ad about what's going on uh, and, and what sorts of deals are available. Or maybe some friend somewhere else is texting you and you can't actually pay attention to the time in front of you. Now those are fairly small things even though I know that they can build up into something bigger. But sadly, even the things that are most important we can do you know, we look at those sorts of things and think, well, I'm not Scrooge McDuck. I'm not their Ebenezer uh, counting all my coins. I'm not obsessed with wealth. But how easily can we be obsessed with what happens at work where we gain our wealth? How many times do we find parents who look back and say, our children grew up so fast and where did it all go while I was busy at the office? Or how many times do we look back and think about all those many years of marriage in which we had an opportunity to develop closer relationship, to become more and more to the unity that God is making us in marriage, and what did I do? I spent my time worrying about one thing or another. How easy it is, too, that we find ourselves in the really most significant relationships of our lives, allowing our worries about everyday material things to take such precedence that we don't see the good thing right in front of us that matters so much more. I think this is a real uh, a question and a challenge uh, that Jesus gives us a question to ask of ourselves is, are we putting first things first? Are we like this man who has uh, the eternal goodness of God standing right in front of us, but us ignoring it because we are so obsessed with the petty baubles, with the little things that don't matter too much in the big scheme of things? It is so easy to fall into it and it is so easy not to notice it unless we step back a little bit and start asking the questions Jesus is asking. Is he really most concerned with arbitrating financial disputes or is he most concerned with giving life to those who are needy, who are dwelling in darkness and finding their lives meaningless and hopeless? Here's a real challenge for us is to say, are we putting first things first? And are we letting the things that aren't so important become the things that are most important in our everyday lives? But related to that, I said that these are really two vignettes that tell the same story about putting the first things too low on the priority list instead of putting them first. Because the second story, in a, in a, in a different kind of way, but still gets to the same point, is that here's a man as well who is not letting the first thing take priority. You can have a little clue as to why it is that Jesus is, is criticizing this man when you listen to it closely. Here's a man who has done great things for himself. Jesus tells him a parable in verse 16. The land of a rich man produced abundantly. And he thought to himself, what should I do? I have no place to store my crops. He said, I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life is being demanded of you and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? Think about this man and about what he would look like in our contemporary world. Here's a man who starts with wealth and instead of simply uh, going off and spending on parties, he invests it, right? Maybe he creates jobs for people. Here's a person who we're not told is dishonest. He, we're not told he's treating his workers badly. Here's a person who takes what he has and he invests it and he does well. He stimulates the economy by building new barns. Here's a person who's prudently storing up for the future and he's not going to be a moocher somewhere down the line because he's saved up 
what he's, he's doing. This is the kind of person where today would become the president of the Chamber of Commerce. You get a little write-up in the Financial Times. This is a guy who is a great example of an entrepreneurial spirit, a person who has risen up the ranks we should all look up to. And yet here, this impudent Galilean peasant says, look at this rich, successful man everybody will look up to. This guy is a fool. Why is he a fool? Do you notice how often this, uh, this way of speaking comes? Listen again closely. And listen for some words that are repeated. What should I do, for I have no place to store my crops? Then he said, I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. Do you know who he talks about all the time in this passage? What am I going to do? What about my barns? And what will I say to my soul? And he's speaking and having a conversation with his own soul. I mean, not only is that a little bit loopy, it is incredibly introverted and introspective. This guy's universe surrounds entirely himself. Even if he's not being mean to other people, even if he's not uh, you know, cursing people around him, his entire life is surrounding himself and his own independence. And this is really striking because I believe that this is in fact one of the greatest temptations modern people have because we believe that above all other things, my personal autonomy, my personal independence are the most important things that I can possibly hold on to. And if you think about how often it is that our world markets to us the importance of autonomy and independence, we'll realize that we've just now absorbed it into our souls so deeply that we cannot think of any other way. Think about if you are a little bit hungry later today and you think to yourself, well, I could go make uh, food or... I have the autonomy to pull out from my phone and say, well, any restaurant in Barhaven I can order and somebody's going to bring it right to my door. I don't even need to speak to another human being. I feel a little bit restless today. I could phone up friends and have a conversation or I could turn on Netflix and have thousands of different options that I could sit and absorb. If I think about so much about what my life is, is that we're told we're autonomous. We can look at whatever we want on the internet. We can book a flight uh, without talking to a travel agent. We can do anything we want to do. And we are told again and again, not that I recommend that, of course. There are excellent travel agents, even frankly, within uh, stone's throw distance from us, right? <laughs> okay. Don't throw stones. Lost my train of thought. Oh, uh, <laughs> But the point of it is, though, is to say is that we elevate that, right? Where if we actually do manage to go and have to interact with other people, anything goes wrong at the grocery store, anything goes wrong when we're buying something, the customer's always right. And in fact, sometimes so much so that even when the customer is deeply wrong, the customer service people will tell you you're right because they say the customer's always right even when they're clearly very, very wrong. We are used to believing that everything can surround us. And so what do we feel? We feel resentment when other people depend on us. And we feel some sense of resentment when we're reminded that we are supposed to depend on other people. That all sounds wonderful, but you know, I've often spoken about statistics like this, but I just read a few weeks ago that um, Angus Reid, which is a, a big polling company in Canada, one of the many surveys they do amongst thousands of Canadians one-fifth, one out of every five Canadians says that they are feeling socially isolated and deeply lonely. 
We live in a world of autonomy, and I don't need to depend on anyone, and nobody needs to depend on me, and what do I feel? I feel lonely, and I feel isolated. Of course, we're all disappointed at the decline of church membership across our country, but it's not just churches. The, the scouts, uh, Boy Scouts are having a hard time, the service organizations, bowling leagues, you name it. The number of things where people are required to, uh, to be dependent on one another and give something of themselves, these are all in decline across the Western world. People don't want to depend on others. They don't want to be uh, dependent. And yet we find ourselves isolated and alone because God said, you know, when he created the heavens and the earth, he said, it is good, it is good, it is good until he creates Adam, the first human being. And the first time we hear something's not good, God says it's not good for the man to be alone and so creates Eve. There's something deeply important about humans interacting and having a social life, not just to go out and have fun, but a social life that recognizes we're part of a network of dependence. First and foremost, this is a story about a man who is entirely dependent upon God, but completely ignores it. Here's a man with just the simple fact that the lungs that operate to pull in air and push it out, the heart that keeps beating, are things that don't continue because of his willpower and his brilliance, but because God continues to sustain this man. And he says, now your time has come, and I will not sustain that heart to keep beating. And then what will he do? Rely on himself? Well, there's not much he can do when that heart stops beating because every illusion of power and independence he has is gone. But more than that, think about what Jesus says when we heard a few weeks ago about a man coming to him and saying, uh, what are the most important laws? And Jesus says, well, what do you read there? Well, you should love the Lord your God with your heart, mind, soul, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, absolutely right. But you notice the order there? Love God, love neighbor, love self it's not you don't love yourself it's not yourself isn't important but you've got to understand that we are made for more than loving ourselves we're incomplete we are people that are not whole and in jesus says we are people who are fools if we do not recognize our dependence on the lord above us our dependence on the people around us and are also our responsibility towards them Here's a man who has great wealth, and instead of him saying, how wonderful it is the Lord has blessed me with it, what can I do to bless the lives of other people made in God's image? Instead, he says, I have been blessed by the sweat of my own brow, by my own intellect, and how can I bless myself? It is a sad story of a man who thinks he's great, but Jesus says is in fact a fool. Time to take a look at our own lives and ask how much of our lives, as much as we say it, as much as we think it, how much of our own lives, in fact, revolve around ourselves as opposed to revolving around the Lord, our creator and sustainer, and the neighbor that God puts across our path. It doesn't mean you don't love yourself. It doesn't mean you don't treat yourself to an ice cream cone now and then. But be honest with yourself. If Jesus were to appear to you tonight and say, show me your Google calendar. Let's take a little look at your bank statements. What story would those things tell to Jesus? Would they say this is a person who creates space so that God can speak to you in prayer, in relationships with mature Christians, with Bible study, even with times of silence where you can listen to God and hear him when he's speaking to you to reset your priorities? Will your Google Calendar show times where you've given to your church, where you've given your time to your children, to aging parents, to the people in your own church who maybe are not as well as they used to be and really could use your companionship or the neighbors around you? What is your calendar going to say to Jesus? 
my soul, it's time for me to eat and drink and be merry? Or will my soul be telling a story to Jesus that says, though I've often fallen short, I've really tried to put you first in my life and I've tried to put my neighbor second. What will he say when he looks at our pocketbook? Will it say our church matters to us? Will it say our children matter to us? Will it say our friends matter to us? That the poor and needy of this world matter to us? Or will it say I matter to me and that's it? These are stories that are not full of fire and brimstone, but I will tell you they are stories that should be deeply challenging to us all. And here's the least I think we can do in response. Make sure you create margin in your life where God has the opportunity to give you a reality check. Do not fill up your life with so many activities, so much noise, and so much entertainment that God can't speak, but instead create places where you are silent on a regular basis, create spaces where you come to church prepared, having prayed that God speaks to your heart and that you listen, and cultivate the kind of friendships that are more than just entertainment, but instead are the kinds of friendships in which people have the freedom to tell you when you're off base. God wants to help us grow. He wants us to live in community, not because he is a God who whacks us with a ruler, but instead a God who knows we will never be fulfilled and this world will never be what it's meant to be unless we act out in the way that God does, in loving God's self and loving our neighbors. That's what it means to be truly human and that's what it means to live out the image of God in our daily life. It's tough sometimes, but you won't regret it.